0: Well, today is Pentecost Sunday. I'm thankful for the church and the church calendar that they bring up these major points in the Christian faith to keep it ever before us so that it doesn't become something buried in the back. You know, present day Christianity oftentimes has got to, it's it's left the realm of, I guess, spirituality and, and biblical Christianity, and it's just like the next flashy thing. The next wonderful series, the next this and I'm not I'm not poo pooing that sometimes the Lord leads us to preach in series. But you understand what I'm talking about. There's always got to be some reason to come to church. Wouldn't you like the God's missionary church that people would come here because this place is on fire and people want to come in here and see what's happening? I'd rather people came here than for any other reason. And I believe Pentecost is the central uh, message, the central truth of the New Testament to make that happen. So we read that the the 21 verses, the first 21st verses of Acts chapter 2. All I'm going to read as a text here is the first verse of that same chapter. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, the disciples, were all with one accord in one place. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, They were all with one accord in one place. Father in heaven, we know that you have read our hearts. You've also heard the prayers that come from our lips, but we're more interested that you would hear the desires that are coming out of our hearts because sometimes our lips can't do it. So Lord, we're asking that you would read that desire in the heart and that you will bring that prayer up into the Father through Jesus the Son by the power of the Holy Ghost, and that, Lord, you'll make this a living word to us this morning that we know that we're drenched and bathing in the manifest presence of God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Pentecost. We understand Pentecost as a whole in His church. I think we've got some kind of understanding. At least there's something in our mind when we think of Pentecost. There's a whole denomination named after this, Pentecostals. They've got their understanding about it. Various different parts of the church of Jesus Christ have their various different nuances and understandings of Pentecost. But we need to go backwards into the Bible and understand it there if we're going to get an accurate picture. Pentecost, believe it or not, doesn't start in the New Testament. Pentecost goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. If you look in Exodus chapter 19... We're told it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the Mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled and Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the Mount with God, excuse me. They stood at the nether part of the Mount and Mount Sinai was altogether on smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole Mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded, and it sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount. And Moses went up, and the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. And let the priests also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon Why do I read that about Mount Sinai? If you are to look in Jewish understanding, they were looking at this feast of ingathering. It's called the feast of ingathering, the feast of weeks, the feast of harvest, the feast of the first fruits. You'll see those names scattered throughout Old Testament. And they equate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai with this Pentecost that we see in the New Testament. When you put these two things together, you see here's this miraculous manifestation of God back on Mount Sinai, where they had just seen the miracles, of the Red Sea parting, all their enemies had been swept with a mighty baptismal flood out there in the desert. And God himself drops on a Mount and they hear the voice of God. They see the cloud over the Mount. It quakes and it shakes and they were terrified. And they said, Moses, you go up there and talk with him. We can't do that. There was a visible manifestation of God in those days. And then with the inception of the church of Jesus Christ, when Jesus rose from the dead and said, "Tarry here," the promise of the father's coming. Then we see the visible manifestation of God descending upon the disciples in the upper room, the New Testament Sinai, if I could put it that way. Do you see the cloven tongues of fire drop on top of these people's heads and divine power and manifestation was there once again. So we find that these, these, they have linked these two things together. The old, the epitome of the Old Testament dispensation, dispensation and the divine manifestation there in the Old Testament was the law on Mount Sinai. In the New Testament, the day of Pentecost, as I had mentioned before, this was in the Old Testament the Feast of Weeks. They commemorated this, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest, the Feast of the Firstfruits, and this is a way. For the people of Israel to offer their best to the Lord. Bring your first fruits. That was the watchword. Bring the best of what you got. Because God's blessed you with all this anyways. If you look in Jewish writings, they often equate this time of Pentecost or this Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvests, the Feast of the First Fruits. They equate it with milk and honey. It's long been associated with what we call Uh, Pentecost. They call Shabbat. Many Jews celebrate the first day of Shabbat or Pentecost by preparing dairy and honey based foods, even to this day. What does that make you think of? If you go back in the Old Testament, what did God say to the people of Israel? There's a land that I'm preparing for you. You've come out of the land of Egypt. There's a land that flows with what? Milk and honey. There's something to be said here about this Pentecost that you and I have looked at in Acts chapter two. About this Pentecost we've no doubt heard of before and some of us many times before. Milk and honey, something of abundance, something of the best and of the first fruits. We know Christ was the first fruits, but then there was the first fruits of the gospel message in those times. After the day of Pentecost, what happened when Peter preached in that one day? It said 3,000 men were saved. Women and children weren't counted. What if every one of those men were married? 6,000. What if they they each had children? 9,000. I don't know what all the figure was, but there was 3,000 men saved right there. That was the first fruits of this Pentecostal power, of this divine outpouring of the Holy Ghost, the first fruits of the church, the very first people that entered in throng like that. That doesn't mean that the disciples weren't saved beforehand. We, we know that very well from the scriptures, that the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. And he said that's been happening from the days of John the Baptist until now. People have been getting saved. In other words, we know the disciples were saved. But the ingathering, the feast of weeks, the feast of harvest, it just happened right there in the day of Pentecost, the three thousand. So it's not wrong for us as holiness people. As we've, t- we've looked at out of Egypt into Canaan, we see it strewn throughout uh, Jewish thought. We see the parallel being made in the scriptures. When you look in the book of Hebrews about Egypt and going into Canaan land and the people of God needing to enter a rest. We see all this imagery spread throughout the Bible and throughout Jewish literature. Then we come to the new Testament to this day of Pentecost that we read about the similarities once again, Wind and fire and vapor of smoke back on Sinai. What happened on the day of Pentecost? The sound of a rushing mighty wind and then flames of fire above their head. Once again, somewhat of a similarity taking place here. The first fruits of that church of Jesus Christ now, which I already spoke about, We see that there on the day of Pentecost, what had happened? These 3000 people got saved, at least 3000 men, besides women and children. Throngs of people were saved right after Peter had preached that message out of the 12 different ethnicities or nationalities that were then present at that time because of that feast. There they all were in Jerusalem. We see that they're saved like that. We see people that were filled and baptized with the Holy Ghost. 120 of them there in the upper room. We see that and the Bible tells us about that. But sometimes people then ask the question, is it repeatable? That was just for the apostles back in that day, because that was the inception of the church and the mark of Jesus Christ needed to be put on these men. Because if I walked out on the street and I told people I'm I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and you need to listen to me now, what are they going to (laughs) do? I know what I would do. Run. (laughs) I'd run. I'm not saying that there's some not some kind of apostolic position somehow in the church today. I kind of leave that up to God. Charles Spurgeon said he didn't agree with John Wesley's doctrine, but he said if there was ever, ever an apostle after the apostle Paul, it was John Wesley. So there are people that have that kind of a calling and that kind of a gifting that do that kind of a work. No doubt. But just self-proclaimed apostles is not going to get you far. But when there's some divine manifestation, who's arguing now? When the power that came through Peter's preaching hits the hearts of the people and their consciences are pricked, who can question it? No one. But people like to keep it back there. And they ask the question, is it repeatable? Well, I'd like first to look just back into or back in the New Testament. There are three separate times where we see something like this taking place once again. This Pentecostal divine power coming from heaven and down where men can see and experience. We see the Samaritan Pentecost. We read in Acts chapter eight, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid they their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. We see another outpouring of the Holy Ghost in Samaria. We see a smaller version of this where the God-fearers Those of Cornelius household, they had a similar experience in their house that the apostles did on the day of Pentecost. And the reason that we know that is because Peter referenced it later when he said, God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, Cornelius household, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us and put no difference between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter says what happened to them is the same thing that happened to us in the upper room. That's what he said. So we find the Samaritan Pentecost. We find the Pentecost of the God fearers Who knows what kind of a reach happened just because of Cornelius conversion and what explosive growth had taken place in there because of that whole household receiving the Holy Ghost. We're not told. We find also the Ephesian Pentecost in Acts chapter 19. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples who are disciples, by the way. Followers, believers, right? Finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they say, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him. So the baptism of repentance, John was saying, believe on Christ who comes after me. That was the baptism they had. So their faith was in this Christ whom John told them to believe in. Now we're told that when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about 12 there in Ephesus. We know the effects of that is that in Ephesus, after the space of two years, it said the entire city had heard the word of God and they took their books of dark magic, put it inside of piles and had a great burning flame there. We know that it spread. It wasn't just a little something, 12 little guys over here. It spread throughout the entire area. So the question is, is it repeatable? Well, according to the scriptures, it is. And a little bit later, I would just like to bring to your attention, some things that have happened in history, sometimes more recent, but I want to talk with you first about the day of Pentecost as it relates to us and applies to us right here in this day. We read when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one, one accord in one place. So I want you to understand this when the day of Pentecost was fully come, what does that say? That says that that day of Pentecost couldn't have come any earlier than it came and it couldn't have come any later than it had come. There was a time in which God on his timetable had pulled everything together, moving around people, things, places, everything so that it came to this head so that when Peter was there and he stood up and preached, look, where, look at the audience, look at the expectancy in the hearts of these people. I think sometimes it does us well to look at a situation like that and realize these people were Jews They knew that this was the time of the Messiah. There was all this buzz about Christ, this Christ who had died and risen again. They knew all of that. So that the atmosphere in that place was electric. It was ripe for the picking. Sometimes you and I can look at situations like this and we think something's wrong because 3000 people aren't getting saved right now. Something may be wrong, but it may be that we need to get on our face and pray and seek God and believe God to then move things around so that everything's set in place, that he can jump his spirit out and the work can be done. It says when the day of Pentecost was fully come, sometimes you and I have to deal with a burden for a little while. And I've heard Leonard Ravenhill say it like this. He said, God gives you a burden. Think about it when a lady has, she's conceived, right? There's a child in her and as the, the child starts to grow within her womb and it gets increasingly more uncomfortable. There's pains that they had. There's challenges that they didn't have before that they now have. They're starting to, at the end, waddle around and thinking, oh, good night. I can't wait for this to be all over with. And at the same time, dread fear because it's going to happen soon and it doesn't feel so nice. Right. But part of that travailing is that there's the conception Of the Holy Ghost inside of our hearts of something that he wants to do and he wants us to carry this out and it gets painful. It gets uncomfortable. We have to bear with it because we see that things are not going certain ways around us and we're bearing the burden out in prayer. And all the while, this is growing in the womb of our soul until the fullness of time has come. I don't understand all the mechanics of that except to say that when you look at any kind of revival effort that had happened in history, you find that this is very similar every single time. This seed of what the Holy Ghost wants to do in a community or in a place or in a nation even gets planted inside someone's heart and then it just births in there and it starts to grow and grow and grow until they get to the point of that travailing burden prayer where the birth actually takes place. You and I can't make that up but we can, we can be in a position and a posture that God could use us. But it says when the day of Pentecost was fully come, now, that was a big day, but we've got to take that big day and funnel it right down to where you and I are right now, because I believe God's supreme method and his chosen method is that you and I have a personal Pentecost so that there can be the greater Pentecost. Remember, they were all in one place in one accord, right? I'm not saying that God can't step down and do whatever he wants with one or two individuals. He certainly can. But I think he does that in spite of the church or in spite of the situations, not because of it. It's because he couldn't find anybody else to bear the burden, but he did find those one or two. But God wants it that his people have the personal Pentecost. And when his people have the personal Pentecost, what kind of a collective Pentecost may happen what kind of an outpouring of the Spirit of God may happen? What kind of a witness for the Spirit of God will be in the community round about when there is a whole church full of the Holy Ghost and fire? And when we go out and around the community, people know it and they sense it and they feel it. Because now there's a church here that's got a burning flame inside them. And it's divine. It's not just a bunch of energy. It's God's Spirit inside of our spirit. But we've got to start with that personal Pentecost. And that personal Pentecost... First, there needs to be that personal purity with this Pentecost. There's an awful lot that's talked about the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Ghost. And I'm not convinced that most of the time people say this is the power of the Holy Ghost, but it has anything to do with the Holy Ghost. I think more often than not, it's just a bunch of emotion and all this other thing. But where's the true conviction? Where's the true conscience being pierced and turning to God? And Where's the transformation of life? Because if that doesn't follow, I don't care what this manifestation looks like. And I'm not saying that God doesn't come down and meet with us. It's been precious when we've been here before. And the Spirit of God has dropped down and the sweetness of His presence and He ministers to us. The Bible says that that'll happen when refreshings, re- refreshings come from the presence of the Lord. But we're talking about something different here. But it's got to start with a purity. We have to have alignment with God in everything concerning our heart and our will in obedience to him. He cannot give us his power if we cannot use it rightly. It doesn't make any sense. I've said it before. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Oftentimes people will seek the power of God because they want they want something for themselves. They want everybody to look at them because of what great person they were. How many people fell at their feet and sought God because of the power of the Holy Ghost? That's why they want it. They want it so that everybody else can look at them and say, what a great man of God and bow. You'll never get it. You'll never get the Holy Ghost like that. You'll never get that purity like that. That's that's the antithesis of purity. It goes against it because it's taking the glory out of God's hand and it's making it larger than my breast. And I'm taking I'm robbing God when I do that. The thing is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. That statement is the quintessence of carnal strategy. In other words, that 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 corruption within we'd rather see ourselves like we want to be seen than to see ourselves like God does. And so that that carnal heart, that impurity that's within would kind of step back or color everything much nicer than it really is. And the thing is, the Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. What does that mean? If that impurities within you fool yourself, sometimes you're doing these good deeds. You're doing what you think is what God wants. And all the while you're doing it for yourself, all the while, the motives in your heart are not his motives anymore. And so that heart being deceitful above all things tells me it's deceitful above everything you call good in your life above every good deed and every good gesture that you could do, every great undertaking for God. If there's that deceitful heart in there, it's taking the glory and sometimes putting that light better than what it really is. He says the heart's deceitful above all things. We've got to believe that, otherwise we can't get forward. That carnal heart within is evasive. It's an ally with the serpent himself. Cunning and crafty, and you'll find that when people don't want to get serious with God, do you know what happens? They put a front on and there's that that corruption behind that's very sneaky, just like the devil himself, and it destroys numbers of people. It destroys God's work and it destroys much. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. They were bickering amongst themselves about who's gonna be better. They had all carnal ambitions and all carnal pride and trying to raise themselves up above one another. And Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Can you imagine a church going out and trying to win the world for Jesus Christ with that going on? And you say, well, that's not going on. But the thing is, God sees the secrets of our heart. And it may not always be something that comes out in the forefront, but given enough pressure, given a certain circumstance, the spoilage that's within is going to come out and spoil his work. So there needs to be that purity. We find it in Jacob. How many years did he run away from God being deceitful and trying to work everything out himself and not just submitting to God and letting God take care of him years and years over 14 years? Jacob did that. Until he confessed to God who he was and God took care of him and said, no more. You're a prince in Israel. What about David? How he loved lying in his breast. He saw Bathsheba when he was up on the roof and he tried to then kill Uriah so that he could hide the sin of the adultery that he committed. So not only did he commit adultery, but he also commanded the murder of Uriah. Then he marries her afterwards, which probably looks suspicious to many people, but they didn't say anything. And then Nathan, the prophet comes later, Nathan, the prophet. And he says, thou art the man. And then we've got Psalm 51, where David says, "Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. And at the end of that chapter, he says, then shall I lead transgressors in the way David knew it. The pollution of all of what I thought was good in me. That's what we're dealing with, with that purity. It's tainted. The Bible describes it as the sin which doth so easily beset us. So oftentimes people say the sin, like there's one single sin, like, well, the sin that so easily besets me is uh, lying. The sin that so easily besets me is, um, you know, cigarettes or something. No, 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 that's not what the scripture is talking about. The whole tone of that book of Hebrews has nothing to do with that. But the sin that so, doth so easily beset, Is that sin that no matter which way I turn going forward to the left behind me, up or down, it's everywhere. It's enveloped me. It's choking me. It's the root of sin. It spoils every good thing that I would hope and desire to do and long after for my savior. It's the sin that's around about me and I can't get away from it. The sin which doth so easily beset me. This is that purity. We need that purity to take care of this very thing. It taints Everything. Don't doubt that a personal Pentecost will give you a pure heart. Many times people say, well, you can't have a pure heart. Read the Bible. The Bible says you can have a pure heart. Some people may have some funny ideas of what a pure heart may be. You're not going to be an angel having absolute perfection, but the motives of your heart are not going to be corrupted anymore. You may do a lot of things out of ignorance and God will help you with that. But the wellspring of your heart will be glory to God. Glory to God. That's the wellspring of your heart. Love to God. Love to man. That's my intentions. Even if what I intend doesn't go out the right way, I was hoping. And afterwards, I think, oh, no, what a mess I've made. That's drastically different from somebody whose heart secretly is trying to gain glory for themselves or to destroy another person, you know, under the surface. That's drastically different. You can have a pure heart. Don't doubt it. A personal Pentecost will give you a pure heart just as sure as Peter testified what happened there with Cornelius. He their heart was purified by faith, just like ours later or in another place in Matthew, we're told of Jesus whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his weed into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Sounds an awful lot like purity to me, doesn't it? Burning the chaff up with unquenchable fire. Winnowing all that that needs not cling to our soul out of the way so that what's left is the, is the full grain without the chaff, without the husk. Don't doubt that a personal Pentecost will give you purity because it will. What is pure? Ask anybody who is going to go buy a, a, a diamond, a pure diamond. Ask him what they're looking for when they're buying a pure diamond. They're not looking for 70% diamond. They want a pure one. If they're going to lay all their money out for this precious gem, they're going to check it out. They're going to have somebody that knows what they're doing and hopefully they know, or maybe they've got a trusted friend or advisor with them that's inspecting this, looking at the angles and the cuts, looking inside of the gemstone for impurities from every angle under light and scrutiny. Why do we think then any different when God says that we can have a pure heart do we think that, well, yeah, kind of, it's like an ideal. We'll never get there though. I, I, I can't understand that. If God gives us a pure heart, it's without mixture. It's not yay carnal and yay Christ. It's he slays the old man. The body of sin is crucified, or excuse me, the old man is crucified that the body of sin might be destroyed. It sounds like a purity, a wiping away, a cleaning out of the way. We're told in Malachi 3:3 that Christ shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. What a thought. In other words, he needs to purify his people so that the things that they do, the offerings that they do, those works they do for God may be an offering in righteousness. Otherwise, God says. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. All your works will burn up in the end and be as nothing, no matter how great it looked. Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we preach? Didn't we do all this in your name? Depart from me. I never knew you. You know that that area in scripture, right? So it doesn't matter about we could burn ourselves up and go into the ground trying to do all this stuff for God. But if it's not from the right motive, it's all for naught. That's why Jesus wanted this Pentecostal purity inside of the hearts of his disciples, because he knew that if he was going to give them the power of the Holy Ghost, the only way that they could rightfully go forward and use that power was that if they were dead and empty of themselves and filled with God himself, that God could reign in their affections and every part of their body. It's one thing. To just submit our lives to God and give him over things here and there. It's another thing when inside God can see that we'll submit this outwardly. But there's still something wrong in here. He wants to just clean up the wellspring so that it becomes natural. He wants to give us purity of motive, purity of ambitions. Christ and Christ alone. That's what he wants from us. All of the nuances could be uh, or could be foggy and hard to explain as far as purity is concerned. But I'll have you know this. If somebody has sought the Lord for a personal Pentecost, they can give you a clear testimony of what it was like before they had found that Pentecostal experience with God and what it's like afterwards. And it's a marked difference. Can I write everything out in such detailed perfection on a piece of paper? Probably not. But I do know what happened. I do know that something's drastically different. I do know that there's a power and there's an anointing inside of my soul that was not there before. I know that there's an abiding sense of the Holy Ghost that was not there before. I know that sometimes unbeknownst to me, there has been power that's come from my own mouth when I had no idea. And later to find out this and this and this had happened because of some words that I'd spoke and I'm over at home thinking I'm failing and praying and God's ever yet saying, it's not you, my son, it's my spirit through you or my daughter, right? You'll know a marked change. These disciples knew. They didn't say, well, I wonder what just happened. I wonder if God just came. I wonder if he just made a change in my heart. No, they saw those cloven tongues of fire. They jumped up on their feet and they were shouting. You better believe they were shouting because the other people are like, there's a bunch of drunkards over here. They've been partying all night. It's the only reason for this. And he said, no, no, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. And then he preached and conviction went boom, right into the hearts of the people. So with this Pentecost, this personal Pentecost, there needs to be a a Pentecostal purity. And then when there's that Pentecostal purity, there can be the Pentecostal power. And the Pentecostal power is not something strange and bizarre. It's the most sane thing in the world. It's God living in the breast of a human being. It's God invading your personality and making you altogether different than you were before. And continuing yet to make you more and more like himself in areas that you don't even understand right now. But that Pentecostal power can flow through you because he's cleaned all the junk out of the way. Then we can be channels for the power to flow because now these channels are properly directed. They're directed according to God's standard, according to what God wants to do in your life and not according to our own selfish plan or ambition. And if we have those Pentecostal experiences, we'll have Pentecostal people in the church. Not denomination, Pentecostal, but people that have had their hearts purified by faith and filled with the Holy Ghost will have Pentecostal people. And that's what we want in the church. Pentecostal people. If we have Pentecostal people. Then we can have Pentecostal unity in this church. God can circumvent this whole thing. He can find somebody out here that's aligned and he can pour his spirit through and something can he can do that. But you can read all throughout the scriptures about unity in the body and how this happens in a habitation of God through the spirit. It's God's longing and God's heartbeat that you and I have the personal Pentecost so we can have this Pentecostal unity inside of the church that the spirit of God can flow unhindered through a whole body of people. That's his utmost desire. And if we have that Pentecostal experience ourselves, we can have the Pentecostal unity in the church. Remember, they were as one accord in the upper room, one place, one accord. Having that personal Pentecost is the greatest aid to that collective Pentecostal unity because there's now death to self, death to selfish ambitions. Now everything is Christ. Everything is, what do you want, Lord? I'm your hand, I'm your foot, I'm whatever, what do you want? And we gladly fill our place before God. And not like the disciples before the day of Pentecost, where they're arguing about who's going to be better known. That's all out of the way. Now it's Christ. What brings him most glory? I've looked, I looked at a, uh, there was a military documentary I saw just a little while ago. And if I already said this, you'll just have to listen again. But I saw this military documentary and it struck me. These men were going into the mountains of Afghanistan. They were getting shot at from every side. They were surrounded 360 degrees. Every single one of those men had a job, every one of them, and every single one of those men had such utmost trust in the other man doing his job. They never had to think about it ever again. This man will do this. This man will do that. This man will do this. And this man will do that. They all had such a linked brotherhood between them, such a linked family trust. They would die for these men. So when they're out there in the midst of the battle, they don't have to think about, well, we need such and such who's going to do it. No, they already know this man over here, he's going to take care of it and he's going to do a good job and that's all he's going to focus on. And this man's going to do a good job with what he's got and that's all he's going to focus on. When we get that Pentecostal experience, I think at large, it's a great aid to us to get the fever out of the breast, the fever of trying to be everything instead of just being what God wants you to be. And then when we have that Pentecostal unity, the church of Jesus Christ would work like a well-oiled machine. It would work like a special ops military group where we could go out and make a dent in the kingdom of, of Satan and everyone being at their post. We get this with this Pentecostal unity, Holy Ghost empowerment, not empowerment just of the individuals, but now empowerment as a whole body, the church. Empowered with the Holy ghost, all the strings of the church, the instrument of the church are now vibrating together and making one sound instead of discord among the brethren, which is an abomination in God's sight. The Holy ghost can only make our hearts beat as one. In other words, he tunes our heart to his. And if we want that unity in the church, it's a personal responsibility of yours and mine to seek God's face, to make sure that that Pentecostal purity and power is in my own heart and breast. And when it is, then I can adjust to my brother or to my sister out here without that carnal corruption getting in the way. Then we can have that smile of God that's on us as a church. Then with that Pentecostal unity, you know, what'll happen because the spirit of God is breathing inside the church. There'll be the mass desire of the church to pray. There'll be the mass desire of the church to win souls for Jesus. There'll be a mass desire of the church to read and devour the word of God and stand on the promises. There'll be the mass desire of the church for the manifestation of the glory and spirit of God in the church and in the community. There won't have to be somebody up here beating a drum saying, this is what we need to do and bless God. We need to. It won't be like that. It'll be coming from the ground up. It'll be swelling up from the heart of the Holy Ghost within the believers that this will be a collective realization, a collective burden, a collective desire, because everyone's died to themselves and to their own plans and ambitions and have been filled with the Holy Ghost. And if you're filled with the same person I'm filled with, then we're going to do the same work together, aren't we? And that's what he did in this day of Pentecost, the 120 in the upper room. Think about it. We've seen sometimes, some of us, we've gone to camp meetings. You see somebody get blessed and peel off and run around the outside. And you're thinking, what happened to them? Sometimes people are thinking that and they're thinking, oh, he looks like a fool. Or sometimes people are looking at that and thinking, I don't have what that guy's got. I've seen that happen before. Somebody peeling off and running set few people to the altar because they thought, whatever that guy's got, I don't have it. But think about 120 people where the Holy Ghost drops in on 120 and that baptism of the Spirit of God is manifested in such a manner with 120, what would that be like? What if there were 120 people inside this church here in Rome and the Spirit of God dumped in on this church? You think it's gonna be quiet in here? I don't think so. You won't know what to do with the joy that's inside of your own breast. And you're gonna go running out into the streets, guaranteed. Brother Mitchell said there was an old man that was in his church and they had a balcony up above. This is Roland Mitchell. He said that the service started to get to such a pitch and he said the presence of God became so thick and strong and he said I could hear it and it was just like this breathing of the Holy Ghost in here and everyone you could see it there it was affecting everyone and he said oh dear God help that young man or that old man not to get blessed right now because he said he was afraid that if that man got blessed he was coming off the balcony. Sure enough, he said that old man jumped off the balcony down onto the floor, peeled off across the street to a 7-Eleven and brought men back in there with him. Why? That wasn't this, this man just had something to prove something happened to him. And he, and the, because of the Holy Ghost in that man, he probably hard to have had to say much when he went inside there cause they saw it all over his face. And then they came back in, you know, if a church is filled with the Holy Ghost, And filled with people that are filled with the Holy Ghost. People are going to get hungry. They're going to want to know what's going on. But that's going to take yours and mine. Responsibility to find it ourselves. If we've got that Pentecost. That personal Pentecost. Then we can get more in a larger scale. That Pentecostal unity. Then we have to talk about Pentecostal prayer. Spirit filled prayer. I think sometimes this thought seems so elusive to people that it's, it's like, you can't reach it. You can't get it, but it's simply this when your desires have been crucified and laid at the feet of Christ. And all your desire is panting after what God wants, what God is doing. That's all I want to know. And we may have a struggle of a time trying to figure out what that is. I'm not, I'm not going to say that that doesn't happen. Sometimes you've got to spend some time with God for a long while before you start to figure out what exactly he's doing. But I'm talking about spirit filled praying, holy ghost praying. It's when the spirit of God can so lay a burden on her heart. And it can be a sense of agony in the heart. It can be a sense of longing in the heart, something that you cannot get out of your mind, something that's always in front of your face. You think it, you breathe it, you eat it, you sleep with it. It's just there. And there's something inside that groans out. And it's not, it's not like, it's not normal. It's not like something that I just made up. It's all of a sudden I sense the heartbeat of God about a person or about a situation or about a circumstance. And all I can do is just eat, sleep and drink this burden. And he starts to pray it through and you'll start to amaze yourself because you realize there's longings coming out of you that make no sense. You realize you didn't make this up. When we're adjusted to God in the right way, he can trust us with a burden like that, where we can bow our heads down. And sometimes you can't even get the words out, but you can just groan it out. You can just groan it out and shudder and shake saying, God, help. I don't know what's going on. I don't even know how to handle it. And he just pours it through. But if we have that Pentecostal experience and all that carnal corruption out of the way, he can dump a burden like that into our heart. He can trust us to carry it and he will do more through that than out of all the prayers that you ever offer in your life. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray. Sometimes our mind is dull or our spirits are somewhat dull and it takes a little bit of effort on our parts to be like, listen up, listen up, spirit, listen up, soul. Come on, mind. Let's get to the task. We've got to stir ourselves up at times, but we're stirring ourselves up all the time, looking to him to take over, looking for him to give me the prayer of the Holy Ghost. You're saying, Lord, I want this. I feel a little bit drooped. I feel tired. I may even feel dry right now. Whatever it might be. Lord, here's what's going on and I need your help. I see that this is a need. And all of a sudden you start to realize some kind of something comes up from underneath and that's the Holy Ghost. And the grace of God comes up from underneath the atmosphere changes, your prayer changes, freedom starts to come from your heart and out as you pray. We can pray in the Holy Ghost. And I'm not saying somebody can't pray in the Holy Ghost without the Pentecostal experience. But when we have that personal Pentecostal experience and that Pentecostal unity in the church, it's going to be easy for God to drop those burdens down all over one after the other, one after the other, one after the other. And I'm not here to dictate to you what that's supposed to look like, or even what it's supposed to feel like. I wish I could explain it better than I am right now, but just be obedient to God. Say, Lord, give me a burden. Give me a Holy ghost burden. Don't say, Lord, give me a burden, then go home and try and work one up. You'll drive yourself insane, but Lord, give me your heart, your burden. I don't know what it is and be all right with it. If it takes a couple weeks. Before you even know what's going on or before you know what his burden is, it's all right. It's not just a burden of mind or human heart, but a burden that, you know, comes from him. And with that spirit filled praying, you'll find that there's spirit filled faith that backs it up. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The the Greek literally means this. The in rock prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Meaning that this Greek word is in the passive voice. It's not the effectual like I'm I'm so effectual in my praying that if I just keep pressing it, God's gonna do it. It's in the passive voice, meaning that it's done to this person. The in-raw prayer of the righteous man availeth much. In other words, it's this prayer burden. When God the Holy Ghost lays a prayer burden inside of your heart, you find that there's also faith to mount up and grab hold of God for him to do the very thing you're praying because you're assured that it's his burden. And you can't you can't drum that up, but that is that will happen to a person who's got the Holy Ghost inside of their hearts in fullness, who has had their heart purified by faith. Doesn't happen all the time. You wouldn't be able to sustain that all the time. But it can happen because we're out of the way, and God can come in and put that in raw prayer within. Then, the Pentecostal revival. You see how I was saying in the beginning, when the day of Pentecost has fully come, there's work that needs to be done. God's going to work on you. God's going to work on me. God is working in circumstances and in people all round and about, and he's trying to get you unified with the Holy Ghost in harmony with him. Then he's trying to get the church in harmony with herself and with him. And when he does that, then the Pentecostal revival can be outpoured in a sustaining manner, not this transient little spill, but something that is powerful and something that lasts. When individuals have experienced a personal Pentecost, and then as a body are adjusted and unified to experience, then a a collective Pentecost. In the beginning, I had asked that question. Some people say, is this even repeatable? Well, here's where we can find in history where it has happened. We look at Mr. Wesley, John Wesley, He didn't make up the doctrine of entire sanctification. He didn't make up about being filled with the Holy Ghost or a personal Pentecost. It's just that this doctrine got so buried over darkness in the church throughout ages. And he pulled it from all the writings of church fathers and and bright spots throughout church history. He found all that, pulled it together, and that helped him to form his theology along with living experiences of people. And he pulls it all together. So lest somebody say Wesley came along and made this up. You can throw it off to the side. Wesley wasn't a rogue man Wesley Wesley pulled up what he had seen in church history and what he knew to be true right then and what he saw in the scriptures. And he brought it all together as one big case, like a lawyer to a jury. This is un, you, you can't get through this. This argument is solid. And it was, and the proofs in the pudding, because look at Wesley in his life. Look at how fruitful. The Wesleyan Methodist revival was not only in England, but then spreading over into America. These people and these men were filled with the Holy Spirit of God and towns and cities turned to God. Thousands upon thousands of people turning to God. So we find that those ki- those types of Pentecost have happened not too long ago in the 1700s. Jonathan Edwards. Now, here's one of those examples where in the pages of history, I'm sure there's other things that you and I could find. Maybe we only see the account of Jonathan Edwards being so sick of the sin in the church and the indifference in the church. We hear the story about how he fasted and prayed for three days, asking God to give him a sermon. And he gave him the sermon sinners in the hand of an angry God. And he preached it with a paper in front of him like this. And he just spoke it, not dynamically like you and I would expect or hope a preacher would preach, but he's just speaking it out, trembling. And as he pulls the paper down, there's people climbing up the pillars in the church, begging for mercy because they're trying to climb away from the the hellfire that's beneath them. Because he said they were hanging from a spider's web over the pits of a fiery hell. And then these people are bowing out into the aisles, running over the tops of the seats, screaming and begging God for mercy. I don't think it was just Jonathan Edwards, was the man that prayed, though we find that in history. I'm sure that there were other people that were praying that had this burden that God had laid it on their hearts. John Jonathan Edwards wife had a Pentecostal experience and Jonathan Edwards himself had a Pentecostal experience. These people got themselves laid it on the altar. Let God take care and burn out the dross, fill them with himself. And look what God can do with a Pentecost, the great awakening through Jonathan Edwards and spreading throughout our nation. Then there's Jeremiah Lanfear, the prayer revival in America. He saw the economic situation that was going on in America and how it was in dire straits. Morality is tanking. The church is dying and it bothered him. So he rented a little place. And and he said, we're going to have a prayer meeting. And he talked to some of his business friends. We're going to have a prayer meeting on such and such a day. The first time he went to the prayer meeting, he was the only person there. Shortly after, there were six people. I think it was in the space of six months. There was 10,000 people. Not in that one building. But because of that one man and felt like God was wanting him to start this prayer time together because of what he had seen through that one man, then many happened. And it said that that revival was the beginning of the third great awakening. That revival spread from America to many other continents. are stories told of people coming in on ships to the harbors. They're out, you know, like drunken sailors on the sea. They come in and all of a sudden there's such a divine awe that strikes them. They're suddenly convicted and not a soul has talked with them. Why? because there's a Pentecostal revival that was being outpoured in those times. We look at the man, Duncan Campbell in the Hebrides revival. Same thing with that man. He didn't think of himself anything special, but he obeyed the spirit of God. He was sitting in a conference where there were thousands of people. He said he was sitting up here. All of a sudden the Holy Ghost says to him, you need to leave right now. What would you do if you were slated in front of thousands of people to speak? He said, you need to leave right now. And he said, that's crazy. He's reasoning all this out in his mind. That's crazy. That's not going to happen. Nope. And he said, it just continued. And he said, I started to realize that that wasn't the devil. That was the Holy Ghost himself. So he starts talking with the man next to him and says to the man next to him, I've got to go. The Holy Ghost told me I've got to go right now. The man said, you can't go. There's thousands of people here. He said, I'm sorry. I've got to go. And he leaves and he ends up going. Two old ladies are praying for him. <laughs> he, he leaves. He ends up going over to this island. He says, find me the minister. Well, there's no minister. There's an elder. So they find this man who's an elder. That man, he said that all he had been praying over and over again, that Duncan Campbell would come. Duncan Campbell would come to the island. And you know what happened? God told him Duncan Campbell would be there later that day. So you know what he did? He rode around on his bike throughout the entire town. there, telling people come at such and such a time at this church. A man called Duncan Campbell going to be here and he's going to be preaching. He knew nothing, no cell phones, no Facebook, no internet, no telephone. God told him what happened. Duncan Campbell came. The old man told Duncan Campbell what had happened. He said, you went around and told everybody that I was coming. Why? Or he said, where did you hear that? And uh, he said, well, who told you to come here? (laughs) God did, right? And then revival broke out and it swept over town after town, after town, after town. This Pentecostal revival. The Welsh revival with Evan Roberts, same thing. Evan Roberts had a Pentecostal experience. He said, his spirit came to me one night when upon my knees, I asked him for guidance. And five months later, I was baptized with the spirit. He has led me as he will lead all those who conscious of their human weakness, lean upon him as children upon a father. I know that the work which has been done through me is not due to any human ability that I possess. It is his work and to his glory. I was not ever thus nor prayed that thou shouldest lead me on. I love to choose and see my path, but now lead thou me on. This was Evan Roberts testimony. I was seeking God and he baptized me in the Holy Ghost. And then revival in five weeks, 20,000 members were added to the churches in Wales. Estimated over two years, 100,000 converts because of what God had done through those men. It's not just all God and it's not all men. I I would venture to say it's mostly God because it's the desire that he breathes inside of our breasts and we've got to cooperate. The Asbury revival at the school there, and there's been many of them. There was one in the seventies, one in the fifties. There's that school had marked revivals throughout its time, but the, they had a normal chapel service, but there was this, this girl said she, she started to pray and some, something had taken place. I can't remember this part of it, but then she started to say, you know what, we need to meet together. And they had an all night of prayer a group of, of people. They had an all night of prayer. She said when they started to pray about two or three o'clock in the morning, she said the glory fell inside the church and the Lord told them he was going to come and visit them in the chapel the next morning. And what happened? The Lord visited them in the chapel. They said the service was like nothing. It's like nothing. And all of a sudden it just changed and broke people giving testimonies and for one hundred and eighty five hours nonstop. They were testimonies, prayer, singing inside of there, and it spread from there throughout college campuses, throughout the United States. This Pentecostal revival, where have all these many movements started? I I don't, I don't know if every single one of them started because of somebody's personal Pentecost. But there is definitely a pattern when you look in these revivals, that people came to these crisis experiences in their life and God did something for them. Then this burden laid on their heart and then these revivals had broken out. You can see that repeated over and over and over and over. I venture to say these people had this Pentecostal experience, even if they didn't know what to call it. But they were so hungry, they couldn't stand it anymore. And God did something for them. And in turn, they could do something for God. So this burden of Pentecost for Rome, there's a transition that's coming up, but this burden of Pentecost for Rome has got to be carried by you, by all of you. God's going to have me carry a burden for where I'm going. And it's like that with any place you ever go. If there's going to be a burden for a place, it's got to be carried by the church in the place. This burden of Pentecost in Rome is to be carried by you. So you need to make those personal adjustments and harmonize yourself with the Holy ghost. You need to get quiet before God search me. O God. And try my heart. See if there be any evil or wicked way in me and lead me in the life. Everlasting needs to be our prayer. If we don't know that God has purified our hearts by faith, if we don't know that we have received that baptism of his spirit, then we need to pray and get those things taken care of individually. Then when that happens, that he would unify and adjust us to the body of Christ right here in Rome, all gathered in one place and in one accord. And then we have the great expectation. What is God going to do? What's he going to do? I do want to say that as I've said already throughout this, but if no one's ready, God could circumvent. He could find somebody somewhere whose hearts prepared and ready for him to drop that burden on. And he can trust them to carry it through until the travail and the birth takes place. He can do that. But his choice is to have a unified church where we are the habitation of God through the spirit. Every single one of us. That's his choice. That's his utmost choice. Let's not be the people that have to be overlooked, but let's be the people that seek God on purpose so he can do it for us and through us. The scriptures tell us judgment begins in the house of God. He's never going to allow throngs of believers to come inside this church if the church itself is not right. And I'm not saying this to throw darts at people and and try and throw a heavy guilt on. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that in general and even here, if we're not right where we're supposed to be, he's not going to trust us with new souls. We're not going to be able to handle it. We don't we won't have the flame that's going to help those people to get on to where they need to go. But if we're burning brightly in the church here all together, you're going to find out God's going to start pouring people in this place or the connections we're going to be making are going to be more and yet more and yet more because there's reality here. And I'm not saying that there isn't reality. There is reality, but I think there can be so much more. And I'm talking to myself as well. I don't feel like I've really pressed in. In a manner that I've really grabbed hold of God in an expectant manner. I don't, to be frank with you, I feel like I don't even understand how to pray for this kind of a Pentecostal outpouring. I've had times where I feel like the God's like laid that kind of a prayer in me and I've been enabled to pray and I've been very strengthened, but I have, I don't know the first thing about trying to carry that all the way to the end, but I do see it. I do see it in the scriptures. I do see it in history. And I believe that God is willing to teach ignorant people how to do the most important work in the whole world. And he wants to do that for us. And he's going to do it, but he's going to begin in the house of God. As Peter tells us that. So don't be distracted. Let the main thing be the main thing. Jesus said, tarry until. Don't go get busy for the sake of getting busy. Get the Holy Ghost inside of you. Get the power of the Holy Ghost inside of you. Get the fire burning inside the church. Then go. Because I think sometimes we do more damage when we do it the other way around. People come in for a little while. There's a little bit of excitement, blah, 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 and off they go. But if the fire is burning in your soul and the fire is burning in the soul of the church, there's not a whole lot we're going to have to say. We're not going to have to hunt and chase people down to come to church. They're going to want to because they met God. So let that main thing be the main thing. A personal Pentecost and a collective Pentecost is God's method and means, and everything else is secondary. You know that to be true. You know that statement to be true just as well as I do because the witness of the Holy Ghost in your heart right now that what I just said was true. Everything else is secondary to a personal Pentecost and a collective Pentecost. Everything else is chaff compared to that. That's what he wants. We can do a whole lot of things and some things may be good, but that is the main thing. That's why before he died, he told the disciples, tarry here and wait. Because it was the main thing. When they obeyed him and did what he said, look what the church did. Look how the church exploded. Because he empowered the church. Make it your meat and bread to seek a personal Pentecost. Make it a meat and bread to seek a Revival, Pentecost here in Rome, in this city to seek the outpouring of God's spirit. See to it that you don't try to work it up by human ingenuity and busyness. Don't get distracted. See to it that you wait on God in the upper room. If you're going to get it, it's going to be in the place of prayer. If you're going to get your marching orders, it's going to be from the captain. And I realize you and I, we have work to do, but I think sometimes we could get that so clouded and mixed up the work that we have to do is going to be directed by the captain. That doesn't give us an excuse to sit still because if we're waiting on God, he's going to show us, but sometimes he may just say to you, my child, I need you to wait and pray on me right here. That may be comfortable. Not everyone else might agree with you either. Whatever God's talking to you about, though, it is imperative that we as individuals do that. And I can say with utmost certainty, he wants every single one of us to tarry until we be endued with power from on high so that he can pour his spirit out in this church so he can pour his spirit out in this community. Don't start praying more, though, just because I said you should pray now and you should seek God. Well, brother, the pastor, he said that we should be praying now. And so now I'm going to pray four hours every day and I'm going to seek God. If that's, what, if that's what you do, I'm not going to stop you, but I'm saying, don't do it just because I said it because it won't work, but get alone with God and say, Lord, this is closer to your heart than it is to mine. This is what you want to do in Rome. Who's convinced of that? The thing is, it's not even special to Rome. It's what he wants to do to the entire world. It just so happens that we're in Rome. So this is our responsibility. This is our privilege. Lord, what are you doing right now? What do you want me to do? Pour your spirit out. Make such a consciousness of God that flies over this whole city that nobody has to talk with him, but they're arrested in the night when they're laying in their bed. They lay there and they suddenly realize there's an eternity before them and the, the, the gates or the jaws of hell are yawning wide open and they can't eat and sleep and drink. And they're going out inquiring who can help them. God, makes such a consciousness of your spirit throughout your church in Rome. Not just the God's missionary church, but the evangelical church. Any of them. Get a hold of people. Make a cloud of conviction fall over this place. Pray through me in the Holy Ghost because I don't know how to pray. He'll do it. I believe that with all of my heart. If you want it. He'll show you and Lord help us. I wish I could preach this out better than I can right now. I feel like there's more, more that needs to to, to be said. And I don't know what to say. I don't even know how to say it, but you need that Pentecostal personal Pentecostal experience. Then that Pentecostal unity in the church, then there'll be some Pentecostal praying. Then there'll be a Pentecostal revival. Lord, help us. And God is longing to do it. All we have to do is get quiet enough to hear him so that we can walk with him. Let's pray for one another. I'm thinking of these IHC meetings. These IHC meetings mean absolutely nothing unless the Holy Ghost comes. God could do something tremendous through these meetings, but he may not. Our party is waiting on him to figure out what God is doing, when and how, and then just align with that. And if we find in our hearts that there's corruption inside of the heart, then let's just be honest with God. Let's just go down and deal with it. Lord, there's this unrighteous anger. There's this jealousy. There's all this pollution inside of my breast that's so unlike Jesus Christ. I need you to take it out and seek him. And you'll say, I will, my son or my daughter. But will you give me all? And when God says all, there hardly needs to be an explanation. It's everything. No reserves. He can put his finger on any place in my heart or life. And I and I'm going to say yes, if I want what he wants to give. God is going to give the grace and power to help us do it.